morning, everyone. Good morning to those who are at home. It's my pleasure with my wife, Rhonda, to be with you again this morning. In fact, I like the way John did the introduction. It's welcome to the worship team from Sunnybank and welcome to Daryl and Rhonda. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I feel right at home here. I'm, not, I'm no longer from Sunnybank. I am now just part of Hertford Street. Which is quite a nice feeling, isn't it? It's nice to see your faces again. And uh, let me just update you very quickly on, um, apologise to the worship team, you've been listening to my voice for the last six or seven weeks, uh, and then you come here to serve and you get to hear me again. <coughs> the Lord bless you for your service. Uh, we have passed our new constitution, that's meant we've got a new structure and that means we're in the process of calling for nominations for a new board. We have three who are serving uh, as an interim board, but we can have up to seven people in that capacity and then we're serving, looking for new elders out of each of our congregations to form a new pastoral team. So the pastoral team and the interim board are continuing until uh, about the end of November where we have a members meeting to replace that. God is at work. I think there's a good feel in the church. Um, people are slowly returning given the COVID restrictions and many of our folk are still online and maybe like some of you guys, many are still worried about having masks and uh, catching COVID and so on. Um, <clears throat> But that's, you know, slowly going to work its way out. My good news for us, Rhonda and I, is that my daughter Kate and her husband Dan are hoping to move to Brisbane with their, their two children, our two grandchildren. So that means we don't have to go to New South Wales. We can simply stay where we are and half of our family's coming here. So we're looking forward to that. Rhonda is a teacher and she's retiring at the end of this year. She's on countdown. She tells me every morning, 35 days to go, 34 days to go. So she's looking forward to that and really believes this is God's timing, that change is coming at the school, it's time for her to, you know, hand over to new leadership or something like that. And, um, and so pray for me, because I have to go through that process as well. When does God want me to finish at Sunnybank? Um, and so we're in the process of working that through. And we've started the pastoral search committee looking for two new associate pastors to come and join us. And that's what we think God wanted, thought God wanted us to do. And when we did that, Suddenly on this side, we have this person who wants to become a chaplain and we have this, this person who was a potential Mandarin pastor. And, and then I got a phone call this week from another church, a Baptist church near us, that says, Daryl, I'd like to come and talk to you about what Sunnybank did at Hertford Street and maybe Sunnybank could help us as well. So we've got that meeting coming up this week to see. Um, of course, the people in that church are nowhere near as nice as the people at Hertford Street. <laughs> but we'll wait and see, and I think they're in probably a more depleted position than you guys were um, when we first came along and joined you. But God has done a wonderful work here and is continuing to do so, and so let's just wait and see what God does. And then on top of that, we, um, there's a Chin congregation that meets both in our activity centre, they're returning at some point, but there is another Karin congregation who are looking for a place and there are about 200 people or something like that. And so none of the churches around where they are in the Logan area are able to accommodate them. So we extended an invitation to them to come and use our building on a Sunday afternoon for a couple of hours because they are in the process of building a building. So that'll be a short window, but it'll certainly make Sunnybank a, a pretty busy place. And God's doing his work, so good things are happening. So. We are grateful to God for his goodness and 
I need to work my way through this passage. Thank you, Jono, for reading it. You can tell by the reading of the passage that, in fact, it's two passages put together. I mean, Malachi presented it as one. <clears throat> you know, I'm going to pray in a minute. The book of Malachi, there are six uh, objections that God brings, so it's in six sections, and this is the second section, so it belongs together, but really there are two parts to it. So you could do a message on one part and a message on the other part, and so this morning I'm going to push both parts together. Let me just check the time. It's only 9.30. You guys finish about 10, isn't it? Because normally when I get to 9.30, that's when I just have to start finishing, so I've got two minutes to go. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's good for us to be together. We thank you for one another. Uh, fellowship, Lord, is part of your divine plan, all because of Jesus bringing us into his forever family. So we thank you that we can be together. We thank you for your word your spirit and we ask lord that your holy spirit might now help us to understand this passage of scripture and how it applies to us as we seek to follow serve and obey the lord jesus it's in his name that we pray and everyone said amen here is the bottom line in case you get go to sleep the way we worship god reveals what we really think and believe about god the way we worship god not just outwardly, but I mean in terms of attitude, inwardly. The way we worship God reveals what we really think, believe, how we feel, our attitude towards him. In this book, as I have said, God confronts the spiritual apathy of God's people, particularly the leaders, but not just the leaders, it's of the people as well. They'd hit a point of being discouraged because they've returned from exile. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's not as nice and things are not going as well. And so they're discouraged by that whole thing. Plus, they're not free. They're still under the um, oppression, the authority of the Persians, and then it'll be Greece, and then it'll be Rome, and then God will remove them from the nation of Israel. So God speaks in Malachi about these six disputes and in this passage particularly, God is concerned about their attitude to him and his name, his person, the way they dishonour him. So verse 6, let's begin. Uh, I don't have a PowerPoint so we're just going to read it from the scriptures. Malachi starts this message by saying, a son honours his father and a servant his master. Everybody knows that, so that's the normal current trend. The priest probably felt, oh this is good. Uh, we're an authority, and so now he's going to tell them they've got to respect us because we're an authority, but then he turns it. I am a father, so where is my honour? I am your master, so where is your fear of respect of me, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests. It's not only the priests, but it's primarily the priests because they're the ones in authority. They're the ones setting the standard and either reinforcing it or not reinforcing it. They're the ones who despise God's name. Their response to that is to say, where's the evidence? How have we despised your name? And God tells them, by the offerings that you're bringing. They're inadequate and they're inappropriate. And to which they argue, if you look at the text very carefully, God says, you have despised me. To which they go, how? Well, by the offerings that you're bringing. How does the offerings affect you? You see, they make a distinction between what they're doing and the reflection that it has upon God as in what his will is. 
Basically, in verses 1 to 5, God has said to them, I have demonstrated by my actions that I love you. I chose you, I've looked after you, and, you know, I've treated the enemies around you or the other nations around you in a much different way. I have loved you. You can see that by my actions. In your actions, you have not demonstrated that you love me, which is what God, of course, is looking for. Just as an aside, let me just make this point, particularly to parents. The less we emphasise the necessity for children, for the next generation to respect their parents, to respect those in authority over them, the less we do that, then the less likelihood, the concept that God is the one in authority over us, that he is our ruler, that he is our heavenly father, that that will trigger a response of respect. Does that make sense? How we train our kids will affect how they respond to those in authority over them. What do you see happening in our society today? Very much so. Now, some of that comes back to the foot of the parents who have not taught and changed their children because in these days, back in this time, of course, a son honours his father and mother honours the parents. And a servant certainly honours the master. Well, we still do the second bit a little bit. We honour our boss... It's falling apart in the family and it certainly falls apart sometimes in the church. The implication, of course, of all of this is don't just go through the external motions. It's not just about performance, it's about heart attitude. And in verses 7 to 9, God goes on and says, this is how you have despised me. You present defiled food on my altar, my table, verses 7 and 8. You say, not just you do it, you say... The table of the Lord is despised. You offer blind sacrifices and you present the lame and the sick. It's a bit like the priests are going, well, let me ask you a question. Why did the priests present unworthy sacrifices? Here are some possibilities. I hope this is helpful for you, um, but the reality is we don't know the motivation behind it. We just know that was what they were doing. One possibility. They accepted blind, lame, inadequate sacrifices because they were for the burnt offerings. They would be completely consumed. Nobody would have to eat anything. Nobody would know. That's the point. I can keep the prize bull for myself, for breeding purposes and so on, for my own benefits, for my own profit. But I can cull the flock a little bit by getting rid of the inadequate ones. Maybe it was for the burnt offerings. But God knew it. Maybe they were bribed to do so, because when you offered a sacrifice, in many of them, you, the the one who offered the animal as a sacrifice, also ate a portion of it. So they were offering up that which was a useless animal to them. It was no good for breeding purpose. It was no good um, for other purposes, useless to the farmer, but it was okay to eat. So maybe that was behind it. One commentator suggested the priests probably had something like a ratio, that they allowed... You should be bringing a male, an unblemished male, perfect animal, because it represented the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, ultimately. But you can bring one, an animal that looks like that, or you can bring three imperfect ones, blemished. They might have scars, they might have bits wrong with them, they could be diseased or blind or lame or whatever, um, but that'll be okay. But you've got to bring three of them to equal one of those. And if they were doing something like that, then what it was doing was really... Um, lowering the 
raising the standard, getting rid of the poor quality animals, but also allowing the priests and the worshippers to eat more. Win-win. Everybody's better off, except God. God was not being honoured. Um, <clears throat> might make it easier for the uh, priests to, for offering because people were reluctant, just like they are these days, to give to God, to sacrifice for him. So you lower the standard. would increase people saying, oh, I can do that. I'm willing to do that. So that the priests were looking after themselves, basically. And certainly <clears throat> there is a contrast between the nations around them because they certainly had low standards. And so here is Israel now copying the nations around them, culling the herd, but getting credit with God because they're worshipping him and so on. Some of those things are behind the motivation for the priests. And it goes back to, if you go back to the book of Zechariah, which is written about 60 years before this, Zechariah makes exactly the same criticism. He says, when you come to your feast and your worships, you eat and drink in my temple, aren't you doing it just for yourselves? Their worship was completely self-focused. They weren't focused upon God or the greatness of God or the goodness of God and what he had done for them. They weren't being obedient. They were being selfish. So God challenges them in verse 8. Why don't you try that with your governor? Why don't you take an inadequate animal, a, a diseased, a blind, a lame animal, and you want something from the governor, so you go to him and you present him with a gift to try and impress him, So, because he's a man of influence. He's a person who could, has power. He could give you what you want. They respected the governor, the human authority, more than they respected or feared God. So God says to them, what you're bringing to me, why don't you try that with your governor? Will he accept it? You know that he won't. Well, why are you bringing it to me? Why are you treating me like this is basically what God is saying. And even if you jump down to the end of the chapter, verse 14, even when they got into trouble and they made a promise to God, God, if you get me out of this, if you provide for this, if you solve this problem, then I promise to give you the best animal that I have, and then God answers it, and then they renege. And instead of giving the best animal, they give an inadequate beast to offer to God. We no longer have to bring offerings to God like that, do we? Because the Lord Jesus has come, and he is God's perfect sacrifice for us. But the interesting challenge is, is how does this apply to us? Who are the priests that he is addressing in this um, in this passage. Let me share with you, many people would assume that the priest is people like me, those who are the reverends or the, the clergy, and that's not without its application, but the priests are far more, I think, general than that. The priests include all of those who are in spiritual authority who have um, the responsibility and the ability to be able to teach spiritual truth to others. That's why the New Testament now says that we are all priests to God. It's not just the clergy. It's not just the elders. It's not just the spiritual leaders of the church. If we start with them, that's okay, but it doesn't stop there. We need to examine our works and our worship and our attitude to God because we're the leaders and we have an influence. And like in this passage, the influence of the leaders impacts the people. If the leaders are half-hearted, then the people can become hard-hearted. 
So it's the role and the responsibility of the leaders to set the standard and to maintain the standards. So pray for your leaders. Pray for me, pray for Josh. Pray for the leaders in our church. It doesn't stop there. It's anybody who has their, the priests have the responsibility to teach truth. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have that same responsibility to share the truth of the gospel with those where God has placed you. So now it includes all followers of the Lord Jesus, especially those who go into schools with RI teachers, and it includes them. What God says to the priests in this chapter is what God is saying basically to the people of God today. It applies to us because Jesus has come and has redeemed us and has set us apart as his priests. We serve with him. So then God challenges them in verse 9. It's a little bit ironic or a little bit sarcastic. In verse 9, he says, their responsibility, amidst all of their responsibilities, was to be a people of prayer, that they would pray and intercede on behalf of the people. If people committed a sin, they would bring a sacrifice and the priest would pray for them. And they would experience God's forgiveness and there'd be reconciliation. Of course, not because the animal has been sacrificed, but because of the attitude of the heart of repentance and pointing forward to the coming of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. So now in verse 9, God says to them, sarcastically, raise your hands in prayer, come to me. Do you think that I will be gracious to you? Ask me to be that. Your hands are the things that have done this with these animals. Do you think that God will now accept your raised hands? It's not the outward motions. It's what's going on in here, in the heart. What's your attitude and motivation towards God? That's where God is looking, and that's where he's examining it. And in fact, God's response is, shut the doors. Shut it down. I would that there was somebody, one of the Levites, a doorkeeper in the house of God, who would close the doors, that they wouldn't light the fire under the altars, that you couldn't go on carrying on like this. It's half-hearted worship. And it seems that God would much rather have none rather than half-hearted. That half-hearted worship is in fact more damaging to the honour of his name than those who don't do it at all. It's similar to what Jesus says in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 4 to the church of Ephesus. He says to them that you've left your first love. If you don't repent, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to remove the lampstand. Remember that? God does do it. Or in the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. That's these priests. This is what's going on in Malachi. They're not committed. They're not sold out. They're pretending. And God is disgusted. He's angry. And in fact, he's punishing them. They are supposed to stop impure, corrupt, unclean animals coming into the temple. But they've received the faulty and the flawed. They've lit the fires and they've offered unacceptable sacrifices to God. And the Lord is offended. It's worth us pausing and asking the questions for ourselves, isn't it? As we find ourselves in church, well, today, but any day, any Sunday, when we find ourselves in church, what's the attitude of our heart? Are we just on automatic? Or are we here trying 
to offer the best that we possibly can to God. When we sing the songs, not just standing and going through the routine of it, but actually singing that to God, about God, and thinking about the words that you're singing, connecting with it. It's a stinging indictment. The New Testament teaches us that we likewise, as God's people, bring our sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, to God. Romans 12 talks about to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. How are you doing with that? All the way? Half-hearted? Going through the routines? Hebrews 13 talks about offering a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13 talks about doing good and sharing. Philippians 4 talks about a sacrifice as the offerings that we give. One commentator says this, we diligently prepare ourselves for our exams. We do, don't we? Study hard. We prepare ourselves when we go on dates. Have a shower. If you're a guy, you have a shave, you comb your hair, you put on nice clothes. You prepare for it. We prepare ourselves for job interviews. We prepare ourselves when we meet our future in-laws. We prepare ourselves when we are doing some sort of presentation at work. When it comes to worship, are we preparing ourselves? Do we turn up, not do we turn up tired, but do we turn up unprepared, just on automatic, half-hearted? Because nothing important is going to happen in this scheduled time slot. And we assume God will be delighted simply because we are here. I can imagine the priest replying to God saying, you despise my name, you offer inadequate sacrifices, we turn up faithfully all the time. We dress up in our robes. We perform everything we are supposed to do. How can you possibly say that we don't respect you? God says, because I look at your heart and I know exactly what's going on. Verse 11 is a wonderful promise because God is determined to have a people for himself who will obey him and love him and serve him. And it'll consist of all nations from every tribe and from every language, those who have been redeemed by grace and who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 11 says, from the rising of the sun to the setting, from east to west, my name will be great amongst the nations. In every place, incense will be offered and pure grain, pure offerings will worship God in spirit and in truth, worldwide. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to be the true worshipper of God. He was a genuinely submissive son who gave his all as he offered wholehearted worship. And the father was pleased with him. He glorified the father constantly through a life of obedience never resenting or arguing about God's plan for him. Like him, we will become wholehearted worshippers as his spirit works in us, convincing us of the truth that God truly does love us, that God truly has acted on our behalf to redeem us, that we are his beloved children and that we are his servants, servants of the Most High God. How richly... He has loved us. How fully he deserves our best. Our time, our hearts, our finances, our priority, our obedience. 
But these priests, verses 12 to 14, they profane it. They take it all for granted. They say things, God hears what they say. They disparage what they're doing. Oh, what a weariness it is at some point they offer. This is tiring. Their hearts were not in it. God knows their thoughts. They sniff at it. We would say they raise their noses at it. They hold it in contempt. And they even bring that which is stolen, the product of robbery. And people go, oh, this is not important to me, it's not valuable to me, I'll give that to God. So the challenge for us is, how does this, how do we compare to this? Because God is not pleased with it. He says, I am not happy with you and I am not accepting your offerings. Yeah. At the end of the chapter, God even brings out and says, because this is uh, so difficult for you and, and so unattractive to you, I'm going to discipline you. In fact, he says, I'm going to curse you. You've kept the best for yourself. You give me the throwaways. Well, now I am going to let you live on the throwaways. He goes into chapter 2 saying that, listen up, O priest, this is typical of God, that he says, whenever God brings a word of judgment, it is always with a view to bringing about repentance. <clears throat> the heart of the Father is to reconcile, to redeem, to forgive. But their unfaithful worship will bring down God's response. In this case, it's a curse. Just like in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 5, God says, consider your ways. You think you're making a lot of money, but you're putting it into a purse with holes in it. You're planting the seed, but the crops are not growing. You're putting the animals together, but they're not reproducing. All this stuff is happening in your life because you're not following me. That's the curse. The outworking of the withdrawal of God's blessing in our life if you flip over to Malachi chapter 3, verse 11, that's exactly what God says. That from then on, if I remove the curse, I will stop the diseases and the blight in your crops. Or in chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about part of the curse is a breakdown in human relationships between parents and children. That's the curse of God being worked out in our lives because we are not walking in obedience to him. So in chapter 2, God calls the priests to repent. If you listen, if you take this to heart, then honour my name. But if not, then I will curse you. In fact, I've already started the process. That's why things are starting to go wrong. I'm going to rebuke your offspring. That's the next generation. And then he says, and I will spread refuse on your faces. Um, and you'll be taken away. The job of the priest when they received an animal is they would examine it, make sure it's okay, and then they would kill it, cut it, rip out its all intestines and everything else, and then burn it, or part of it. <clears throat> and then all the leftover stuff, the carcass and the intestines and all the internal offal and organs and everything else, they would take that away from the temple far off and they would burn it. And God says, what I'm going to do is when you're doing that, then the offal, the, um, 
refuse, the byproducts from the excreta from the animals, is going to be on your face. You'll publicly be disgraced. And just like that rubbish is going away, so I'm going to take you out with the trash. I'm going to put you aside. With the hope, he says in verse 5, that the covenant with Levi will continue. God's going to discipline them so that hopefully a new lot of priests will come up and the covenant that God had in place with Levi would continue. See, God's intention is that he's trying to redeem and purify and cleanse his people, so too with us. Things go wrong in our life and we should be asking, Lord, are you saying something to me? It's not always God who is at work who's doing that. He allows it. Sometimes it's the opposition of the evil one. So you always need to check it carefully. But God says, when I have done this, then you will know that I sent this command so that my covenant with Levi might continue. The covenant with Levi was a covenant of life and peace, shalom, the wholeness of life. Peace, prosperity, blessings, health, that's what God intends. And of course, it won't be fully realised in this life or in this world, but in the new heavens and in the new earth, when Jesus is king, that's exactly what will be realised. The priests, the Levites, uh, true instruction was to be in their mouth, so too for us. They had no unrighteousness on their lips. They spoke the truth in love, so too for us. They walked with me in peace and uprightness, so too for us to walk with God. And he turned many away from iniquity. They had an influence on others. So God says what they preach is what they are to practice. Let me give it to you this way, and this is directly applicable to us. The Levitical priests, the, Lev the Levites, not just the priests, but all of the tribe of Levi, were to have a proper relationship with God. So are we. Of course, we can only have that through the person of the Lord, person of the Lord Jesus, of reverence and of fear, of respect, of putting God in place, being submissive and obedient to him. We need to cultivate that awareness in our life and have a deep, humble respect for him. Proper relationship with God. A personal commitment to truth, verse 6. Speak the truth in love, speak God's truth, and so on. Also in verse 6, a person of Christ-like character, to walk with God, to be at peace with God, and to demonstrate God's standards to those around them. And fourthly, a person who preserves knowledge. You keep the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is and you pass it on to the next generation. It's not just information, but it's you personally knowing him and being able to pass that on. That's what God is looking for in all of us, in all of us as his priests. But then sadly, God turns in verses 8 and 9 at the end of this section of Malachi and he charges the priests then with the dereliction of duty. They have turned aside from the path of God's word and not only themselves, but they're instructing others to do the same. And in fact, they've caused them to sin. They've watered down the truth of God's word. They have delivered truth to itching ears, told people what they wanted to hear. They've lived double lives, one life publicly, one life privately. And ultimately, verse 9, they show partiality. They look after the rich, disparage the poor, not do what God wants them to be. And so, 
priests, followers of the Lord Jesus, they were visibly set apart, clean, in their robes to serve God in the temple. But they are now unclean, defiled, and God will remove them. He will discipline them. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, as I said, pray for the leaders of the church, pray for one another. But when you come to worship, participate. Don't just turn up, join in, individually as a family and publicly. The mistake that Malachi, what God through Malachi is telling his people back then, it was painless worship and it was thoughtless worship. They offered God what didn't, they didn't want for themselves, it was painless. In fact, they were serving themselves. They got rid of what they didn't want. Don't let us make the mistake of serving our career, our leisure, our family more than we serve God. All are important. God is supremely important. It was thoughtless worship. They didn't take it to the governor because they knew he wouldn't accept it. But for some strange reason, they had the expectation that God would just turn a blind eye. I wonder what God thinks about our singing, our praying, our listening. Are our minds and our affections truly on God or on things of this world? The way we worship reveals the attitude we have towards God. So let me say all of this by way of summary and conclusion. Here is the application. Number one, God is worthy of respect and honour, worship and obedience. Agreed. Number two, God deserves our best. We were just talking about this in our pastoral staff meeting this week about how people sometimes in some situations, you know, they go and buy a brand new vacuum cleaner and the old vacuum cleaner, they say what? I'll give it to the church. So that's the attitude. It's not... I'm wanting to help the church. It's more, I'm looking after me. I'm getting a new vacuum cleaner, which is fine. But don't give junk to the church. Give your best to the church, to God. You keep the old one. Give the new one to the church. If the church needs a vacuum cleaner or a lounge or a table or whatever, don't bring junk. Bring the best. Yeah. Number three, does God like our worship? There's an evaluation question, personally. Does God like that which we are offering to him? Does God like what I'm offering to him? God will not accept half-hearted service. Not even now. Certainly our best is not up to scratch, I know. But God wants us to give our best best it doesn't have to be perfect but it's our best just like we do with our three-year-old kids or grandkids when they make us a birthday card and it's scribbled in and it's colored in and it's terrible but we accept it because of the attitude in which it is done so god with us with our worship the best from the heart God responds to our half-hearted service with discipline. Are you under God's discipline? Is that what's going on for you in your life? 
God is trying to get your attention to bring you to repentance and correction and to line yourself up with honouring him in all aspects of your life. And finally, God has determined that all nations will know of his greatness and of his kingship. So therefore, be the godly person that God wants you to be, to be an influence for him where he has placed you, when you gather, when you scatter, wherever you go, to work or school or university or wherever, be God's person and offer the best that you can for him. Let me just tell you this personal anecdote, then I am going to pray and stop. Last night we went to dinner at a Lions Club at Runcorn. We have new neighbours across the road from us and they're members of the Lions Club and they've been coming to Sunnybank a couple of times and anyway, we're getting to know them and they us and Ken is his name and he rang me during the week and said, uh, Daryl, would you and Rhonda like to come with us to a dinner at the Lions Club? No, I don't want to go. And while I'm talking to him on the phone, I thought, Lord, is this you? Are you opening a door? Are you wanting me, us, to go for some reason or purpose? So I said, sure. I said, I'll talk to my wife about it. And she, we did, and we agreed that we would go. So we went last night, and I thought, what's this about? I think they're on a recruiting drive for us to join the Lions Club, and I don't have any time to join the Lions Club. Anyway, we're having dinner, and we're sitting there, and I wonder if this is what it was about. The guy sat next to me. He was also called Ken. He asked me a question. Why, what were you before you were a pastor, as a teacher? Why did you become a pastor? I told him. He said, years ago, I was sort of under the influence of Presbyterian or Anglican, you know, church. He said, once I went to a Presbyterian church and I was sort of interested, I was sort of seeking, wanting to know more about it. He said, but when I got there, I got a lecture. This guy took him aside and told him that he was a pagan, that he was a sinner, that he was going to hell. To which he responded by going, I don't need this. And he walked away. So then I got to share with him of saying, um, regardless of whatever that message was that he was sending, the reality is that God cares for you. God loves you. God wants you in a relationship with him. That was it. Conversation went on and we did other things. I wonder if that's what it was all about. I don't know. But I do know this, that our Heavenly Father loves people, all people. Sent Jesus to die for all people, to reconcile them to himself. God wants to use you wherever you are in whatever circumstances. Just a little conversation. Doesn't have to be the whole nine yards. Just whatever it is at the time. Be the person God wants you to be because God's name, he wants his name to be great amongst all of the nations and he's using us for that purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. You are the sovereign God. You rule over all. And you've worked and ruled in our lives and you've called us together now to worship you, to honour you, to encourage one another and to again align ourselves with your purposes. Lord, have your way and your will in our lives. I pray that you would bless Hertford Street Baptist Church. I pray that you would use them to extend the kingdom of Jesus, that many more people would come to know him, and that you would help us, Lord, each one of us, 
to be the people you want us to be, followers of Jesus in each of our relationships and situations in life. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.